0: child is a king, the carolers sing The old is past, there's a new beginning Dreams of Santa, dreams of snow Fingers numb, faces aglow It's Christmas time, mistletoe and wine Children sing
1: At the top of Grafton Street, a group of tuneless singers make up a raucous street choir, managing to turn Silent Night into a contradiction in terms. Scurrying shoppers like ants at a party, arms laden with gift-wrapped Christmas presents, head home as the Dublin dust descends. A little girl is mesmerised by Switzer's window with his glorious gnomes who move majestically to the rhythm of the music. Crowds gather, young and old, just to savour the innocence of it all. After picking up my last Christmas presents, I call in to my friend on the way home, John Fitzgerald Montini Byrne. As it's the season of goodwill, I won't dwell on how untidy his flat was. Suffice to say, I had to wipe my shoes after leaving it. The Christmas spirit is sadly lacking in the antics of the drivers in the rush hour traffic. As always, the car radio brings a crumb of comfort to my frayed nerves. I am startled to hear a song I haven't heard in years, which returns to me like an old friend. Suddenly, I am entangled in the clinging cobwebs of childhood. I become a seven-year-old boy again in Roscommon. Like many houses in rural Ireland, our old wireless was perched on a shelf over the television. That Christmas was a milestone for me, because it was then for the first time I was able to adjust the volume of the radio whenever that song came on, albeit by climbing on a chair. To this day, this is the record which I most associate with Christmas.
0: Did you think I would leave you dying When there's room on my horse for two? Climb up here, Joe will soon be flying I can go just as fast with two Did you say, Joe, I'm all a-tremble Perhaps it's the battle's noise But I think it's that I remember When we were two little boys
1: Christmas really began in earnest on Big Saturday, the Saturday before the holiday, when we journeyed into town to bring home the Christmas. It was far and away the busiest day in the town, a fascinating mixture of the festive spirit and hard-nosed business. The market square was buzzing with the making of the deal, an event which inevitably ended either in stubborn resistance or with warm handshakes and God bless you, ma'am, and a happy Christmas to you and yours. The three items sold in the square were geese, turkeys and Christmas trees. Then the obligatory excursion to the friary for mass preceded by confession, for which we queued interminably. On the window ledges, huge white candles flickered slightly as a draught touched them, then shone as brightly as before. Despite the solemnity of the mass, the smell of incense smelt more beautiful than a springtime primrose. The main shops were then visited The heady, exotic smell of spices and dried fruit Striped pink and white sugar sticks The gooey, twisted lengths of black licorices The golden candied fruits The coloured jugs of red jam The mysterious bulging packets Were enticing promises of bliss to come A high level of skill was needed to fit all the ingredients for the Christmas feast into the boot of the car. Records became an ever more popular Christmas present. One radio programme was a treasure trove of ideas for musical gifts. And now it's time to
2: call on the Ben Brass and Reed Band to end today's Walton programme with our Bold Fenian Men March Medley. Now, may I remind you that you're always welcome at Walton's. Do drop in if you happen to be passing 2 to 5 North Frederick Street, Dublin 1. As usual, this is Leo Maguire wishing all our friends of Irish music at home in Ireland or across the IEC a very happy weekend. And Walton's last word is, if you feel like singing, do sing an Irish song.
1: Big Saturday was our substitute for going to Dublin on the 8th of December. That was the day Dublin was invaded by the Colchies for the serious business of Christmas shopping. This was not as easy as it sounded, as the better-off people in rural Ireland had congregated in Dublin for the same purpose. All had targeted the big shops like Cleary's to make their purchases. The shop doors were continually opening with a steady flow of bargain hunters. There was barely room to sneeze. Once I travelled to Dublin on that day with my mother to visit my father in St Vincent's Hospital. We went by train from Athlone in the morning darkness, an event in itself, with the stops in all the little towns and the commuters coming and going like buzzing bees. The struts, smoke and sparks as a powerful engine clickety clacked to the capital city. The lucky ones grabbed the window seat and marvelled at the flashing world as the sky got lighter until it was broad daylight. This was something special, like a trip to Fairyland, a glorious treat that would repay all the weeks of being good. The enduring image was always of the Christmas lights. The simplicity of the lights was always more magical than the more ornate decorations. Then it was back to Houston Station for the 5pm train. In the cool night air, a pale curtain of fog was getting more dense by the second. The 8th of December was normally the only day in the year when rural Ireland showed great interest in its capital. There was one notable exception though, when all Irish eyes were focused on the big smoke.
0: Yes, a massive explosion had brought the statue of Nelson and the upper part of the pillar crashing into O'Connell Street.
2: A souvenir hunter succeeded in getting away with Nelson's head, which was finally returned after exhibitions and whatnot. In our later parish, in the, year.
1: the only occasion when international events had impacted on local affairs was when a neighbour's cousin, world boxing champion Paul Pender, came on holidays to the village a few years earlier. One of my clearest memories of my first year in school was looking at all the pictures on the wall that had been taken when he walked among us. I resolved, there and then, that I would someday be the world champion. Penner's relatives basked in the glory of his triumph. Nobody else in the county, probably even in the whole country, could boast such an illustrious cousin. They've probably moved up a few steps in the social hierarchy. It always amuses me when I hear people saying that unlike the British, we don't have a class system. That's not true, because we have something much more subtle. In rural Ireland, there was a very definite hierarchy which kept everybody in their preordained niche. The only way to break free from your appointed status. On big Saturday night, the decorations were always put up. Christmas tree was normally the first to be decorated. After great debate, the nicest cards we had received were selected and exhibited on the mantelpiece, amidst a sea of tinsel and holly. We were cheated by putting two rows of string across the ceiling and hanging up the nicest cards from previous years. A turnip was carefully chosen to play reluctant host to a tall, white Christmas candle which was neatly adorned with sprigs of red berry holly and dispatched on the kitchen windowsill. Writing to Santi was another important task for that evening. I was determined to ask for football boots, especially after a new name entered my life like a whirlwind.
0: And George Best going through here! Yes, it must be for George Best! Georgie Best has done it! extra time gone and Georgie Best makes it 2-1.
1: The referee we encarceled our small Child presence, wrote cards, showing all world, world people in 18th and 19th century clothes walking George about snowy landscapes. The tree was to be decked out with lovely stars, bobbles, red and green and gold, crisscrossing in a kaleidoscopic display of colour. On the branches, Were little candles, never to be lighted "'because my grandfather was afraid of fire. "'On the top of the tree was a tenfold star. "'There were little silver balls, lights like tiny stars, "'and pale coloured tinsel threaded among the branches. "'Near the top of the tree was strung a row of crinkled silver bells, "'each one with a clapper made from a varnished nut. "'Round the bottom were set boxes of presents.' ...done up in pretty paper tied with red ribbon. The record player was brought out... ...though the song seldom blended with the festive season.
0: There once was an ugly duckling... ...with feathers all stubby and brown... ...and the other birds in so many words said... ...get out of town. Get out. Get out out of town and he went with a quack and a waddle and a quack in a flurry of
1: eiderdown That night too the goose which was to form the main course for the Christmas dinner was plucked and left hanging on the back of the shed door outside Disaster struck one night when a mini storm caused the door to open, allowing our two cats to enter The following morning the goose looked rather anemic. A crisis was averted when a neighbour gave us one of his geese in return for a few bags of turnips. I often wondered if in the middle of the 4th century, when Pope Julius I decided that Christ was born on the 25th of December in the year naught, he could have foreseen the implications of this date for turkeys and geese in the years to come. The next evening was always the time for setting up the crib. The shepherds and the angels, the ox and the ass, were all carefully wrapped in old newspaper to preserve their bright colours. All this was stored in a box in the loft in the outside shed. The task was normally rushed to make sure we didn't miss a second of the undisputed most popular programme in rural Ireland. The largely rural audience who watched the reruns were once said by one smart aleck to be afflicted with a farrago of feeble-mindedness. And yet, these people were in many ways very sophisticated, as was evident in the way they used language. It took real skill to disassemble the easy platitudes and decipher their real meaning. Speaking about a dead priest in rural Ireland, for example, was an art form which a PhD student in psycholinguistics would have found practically impossible. He was careful with money, meant that he was a reincarnation of Scrooge. On the other hand, sure he had no interest in money, said that he would allowed the church and school to fall into rack and ruin. Worse still was, God bless him, the poor man put a lot of work into his sermons. This was a dead giveaway. These sermons went on and on like a transatlantic ocean liner. The greatest depth of feeling was evident in an apparently casual remark. He didn't suffer fools gladly, which revealed that nobody, but nobody could get on with him. The poor priest just could not win. I can still remember the time our priest died when I was 10. His funeral left an enduring imprint on me. There was genuine grief, certainly, but what struck me most forcefully was that nobody cried. In that moment, whatever thoughts I had of a vocation to the priesthood died too. of people. The attendance was swelled by immigrants home for Christmas, a welcome respite for families divided by economic necessity. Christmas was a time of delirious reunions as trains and buses to Riscommon brought relatives home to the bosom of their families. The conversation took on a more cosmopolitan tone, with local and global issues intertwining. One Christmas, though, the talk seemed to be limited to just one catastrophic event.
2: Senator Robert Kennedy was shot this morning in Los Angeles. Reports say he was hit twice by pistol bullets. Five others, besides the senator, were hit. Senator Kennedy is in hospital.
0: Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? No! Is that possible? No! It's good. No! Good. No! Is it possible, ladies and no! gentlemen?
1: During the last few days at school before the Christmas holidays, our normal timetable was suspended. Every year the same poem was read to us, which told me not just what Christmas was like in the past, but how it felt. My father played the melodion outside of
2: our gate. There were stars in the morning east, and they danced to his music. Across the wild bogs his melodion called to Lennons and callans. As I pulled on my trousers in a hurry, I knew some strange thing had happened. Outside the cowhouse, my mother made the music of milking. The light of her stable lamp was a star, and the frost of Bethlehem made it twinkle. A water hen screeched in the bog. My scorn feet crunched the wafer ice on the potholes. Somebody wistfully twisted the bellis wheel. My child poet picked out the letters on the grey stone. In silver, the wonder of a Christmas townland. The wink and glitter of a frosty dawn. Cassiopeia was over Cassidy's hanging hill. I looked and three wind bushes rode across the horizon. The three wise kings. An old man passed and said... Can't he make it talk? The melodion. I hid in the doorway and tightened the belt of my box-pleated coat. I nicked six nicks on the doorpost with my penknife's big blade. There was a little one for cutting tobacco. And I was six Christmases of age. My father played the melodion. My mother milked the cows. And I had a prayer like a white rose pinned on the Virgin Mary's blouse.
1: Some old customs could momentarily transfigure our existence and let the eternal shine through. One such custom was the singing of carols. They struck me as simple ways of expressing those parts of Christianity that ordinary people found most interesting, not the parts that people ought to find most interesting. They were memorable because they were so tangible. They celebrated things that we could touch and see and warm to, a mother and a baby, though curiously not a father, or at least not a real father, a stable, donkeys, shepherds, straw, hay. Learning these cards did have a practical value because we could sing them on Man-Boy's Day. On St. Stephen's Day, we dressed up in old clothes, with blacking and red Indian-style daubs of lipstick on our faces, cycled to all the houses for miles around, where we sang, or more often wailed, in the confident expectation that we would be rewarded with a few coins for our musical offering. Motley groups appeared on the roads or laneways, looking like gangs of tramps in their assorted rags, faces masked or blackened. They did a jig, a reel, or sang a song, trying to disguise their voices, clinking the coins in their collection tents, chorused their thanks, and were on their way to make more money. The charts of the day were trolled to find suitable songs to sing some of the choices were perhaps a little too ambitious.
0: Just go Turn the up. Shade
1: we also read the Nativity story of how the angels spoke to the shepherds on the hillside, and reported that they went in haste and found Mary and Joseph. Looking back now, I wonder if that was the first Christmas rush. Another important part of our preparation for the season was the making of Christmas cards. Part of this reason was economic. We could give cards to family members and relatives without incurring any expense. However, I suspect the main reason for this activity was that it kept us quiet for hours and hours. There was a bag of sweets for the person with the best card, which provided a definite incentive for all of us to do our very best at a time when we were at our most giddy. For that week only, the teacher turned on the radio to allow us to keep up with events in Ireland's favourite family.
2: Fry Cadbury present the Kennedys of Castle Ross. Fry Cadbury, makers of Born Vita, the nicest bedtime drink, present another episode in the life of Ireland's popular radio family. On Thursday last, Mrs. Kennedy learned that the orphanage is to be closed as a result of the damage which it suffered during the recent storm. But Padamahani's friend, Boson McGinty, has persuaded Mrs. Kennedy to arrange a meeting with the orphanage.
1: The 24th was the day when we finished our 4,000 Hail Marys, which we had begun on the first day of Advent. Inevitably, I began the season by faithfully saying my daily quota of 156 Hail Marys. But I let the practice slip in the middle of the month. And then, in the final few days, I had to bombard the heavens with prayers. In the festive season, it seemed easier than usual to be hospitable. Hospitality is when you make guests feel at home, even when you wish they were in their own homes. Every year, our next-door neighbour, George Doyle, an elderly man who lived alone, joined us for dinner on Christmas Eve. At Christmas, George was melancholy, pessimistic, moody. In a peculiar way, he both looked forward to the season of goodwill and dreaded it. He was impatient for the magic that never came for him, but that all the preparations promised. Christmas was, above all, for him, a time to be lonely. In his microcosm lay rural Ireland's universality. He remembered his family scattered all over the world England, Australia, America, and Canada while they felt exile, homesickness, longing and hope for returns that would never materialise. He was trapped in a prison of memories. His pain was a piercing grief of never being able to return to the way things used to be. Like many elderly people in the west of Ireland who lived alone, his loneliness became more intense and shrill with each passing Christmas, at times ascending to a chilling crescendo. Every year, his longing for warmth and affection became more desperate. He was another silent victim of a vast and concealed cancer of loneliness, an emotional holocaust. Christmas was little more than a painful reminder of missed chances for lasting happiness.
0: Never Christmas But it's winter all the time All our lives spent waiting For the sun Children of tomorrow How they need a star to follow In some hearts it's always winter
1: George was the seventh son of a seventh son and had what was known locally as the gift. He was a small, slight man. In many ways, he was a child who had never grown up. He loved a good yarn but was never unduly bothered about trifles like veracity. Every Christmas Eve, he would recite an old favourite. Jingle
3: bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in one horse open
0: sleigh. It was the night before Christmas, when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads and Mama in her kerchief, and I in my cap, had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap.
1: I remember his moustache, white from the frothy Guinness which he enjoyed with his meal. My grandfather always made a fuss of him when he came to us for Christmas making sure he was comfortably seated and that his glass was never more than half empty. He probably gave our guest more whiskey and porter than was good for him. When it was time for George to leave, my grandfather suggested that I should walk home with him. Although George's speech was slurred and his movement unsteady, the offer was spurned with more than a hint of righteous indignation. I was to recall that incident on New Year's Eve 1981, the night when Ireland was struck by the worst blizzard in my memory. The country came to a standstill with drifts of snow. On that night, George had what was believed to be a massive heart attack and fell into the open fire, causing the house to go up in flames. By the time the alarm was raised, The house was destroyed. The ambulance and the fire brigade came as quickly as the snow allowed. When the fire was extinguished, his badly charred corpse lay covered in a blanket of snow. The snow seemed somehow appropriate for such an innocent man. and Wedbury Tully were twined about the hanging cords of the pictures on the wall. A ten of biscuits was passed among all family members bringing a tangible air of goodwill to the household. The biscuits never met it past Christmas Eve. It was a tradition every year that the ten would find a place in the corner of the back kitchen. Like my grandfather my mother could not abide waste. The empty biscuit ten became known as the hens bucket and all food waste sour milk tea leaves eggshells and potato skins ended up there every good customer in the local post office come grocer come news agent got a tin of biscuits and a calendar it was a gesture of appreciation for patronage during the year Darks dull density, the curtains were stripped off the windows and a single candle was put to burn in each cell till the morning. When the rosary was said, the children were dispatched to an early night in bed. No dissenting voice was raised. The back door remained unlocked whatever the weather, so that there was no danger of Mary and Joseph going astray in their search for a resting place. Across the fields, the houses glittered, the light from the candles like jewelled pinpoints in the darkness. A thrill
0: of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn.
1: before the first faint vestiges of light illuminated the specklings of frost on the hard ground. As I pulled back the curtains I was compelled to watch the world take shape despite my haste. The faint horizontal threads of clouds were growing a fiercer red against the still grey sky The streaks intensified to scarlet and to orange and to gold, until the whole sky was a breathtaking symphony of colour. Sunrise so rose my spirits that I could later easily understand why dawn worship had been a powerful primitive belief. Then I rushed downstairs, drawn as if by a magnet, to the place under the Christmas tree where hopefully Santa Claus had neatly piled our presents. Competition was intense as to who would be the first to make the discovery. To shriek out, he came, he came. The excitement transmitting like electricity. Our shining faces a fitting reward to the idea of Santi. This was a time of mystery, magic, hope and above all, innocence. At mass, the priest wore his best gold and white vestments and the pale wax candles on the altar gleamed amid the lilies. The pungent scent of greenery mingled with the waxy smell of burning candles. The final candle in the Advent wreath was lit ceremoniously. So many of my images of Christ are etched in light. The silver of frost and moonlight, the shining star of Bethlehem guarding the Magi, and the radiance of lighted candles. Here, mystery and ritual met at the point where human understanding failed. Then, a song so beautiful that it worked a minor miracle and hushed all the coughing and shuffling. ran on to the day's highlight, Christmas dinner roast goose with ham and potato stuffing. The dessert was to be Christmas pudding boiled in liquid blue flames from a tablespoonful of brandy heated over a candle. A special tablecloth was taken from under its hiding place and the best china and delf were rescued from the top shelf in the cupboard. The atmosphere was as Dickensian as Scrooge after the ghosts. Unusually, a fire was put in the parlour. Although the light was off, the crickle-crackle fire provided leaping flames, dancing shadows and a rosy glow. Our joy was compounded when my mother came in to tell us that her cow had displayed a commendable empathy with the spirit of the season by deciding to bring her healthy new calf into the world. We wriggled our toes and rubbed our gloveless hands to keep warm in the cold of early night stars were like holes in God's carpet, which allowed the eternal light to shine through. We tiptoed in our shiny Wellingtons, avoiding heaps of cow dung in the stable. A hoar frost lay on the fields, and the hedgerows were home with the lace trimmings of what seemed to be a thousand spiders webs. Our cattle were huddling under creeping hedges staring vacantly up at the slate-gray sky with her stoic eyes as they churned the day's grass. The trees seemed to be standing and shivering together, hugging bare limbs and grumbling about the cold. A few tattered leaves met a flimsy blanket on the frozen earth. The proud mother was still licking her newly-born calf. The calf had a red spot on its white face. Fingers numb, faces aglow, we unanimously decided to call him Rudolph.